the title of my talk is What is the Human Person? Um, but when Father Gregory asked me to give this talk, he said, I want you to explain what philosophical anthropology is. So that's what I'm going to try to do. But first, I guess I want to give a content warning or a trigger warning or something, and that is just to let you know that for the entire evening, I'm going to call us all men, and you're just going to have to get over it. <laughs> um, if it really irritates you, then every time I say man in your head, you can just say to yourself, anthropos, and that, right? So when I, when I use the word man, I mean the sense of the Greek word anthropos, which is an androgynous or a genderless term. Um, we would say human now, but this has kind of clinical connotations that I don't want, so I'm just going to call us all men. Okay, uh, and I'm going to start the talk by just making some bold claims, um, and then I'll argue for these claims or try to convince you that these claims are true. But first, the question, what is man, is a properly philosophical question. That's my first bold claim. What do I mean by that? I mean that the question presents itself to us, to us men, in a philosophical mode. Now, obviously, there are many sciences that can and do study man. There's biology, there's anthropology, anthropology, there's psychology, there's even theology, which is a science. Um, but these sciences all presuppose that there's a topic of study and what I want to suggest is that topic is properly philosophical. Now, my second bold claim is that inquiry into ethics or morality, so questions about how you're supposed to live or what you're supposed to do or what does it mean to live well or what's a good human life, this kind of stuff, um, this is conceptually derivative or parasitic upon a prior investigation. And that's the investigation into philosophical anthropology, which concerns itself with the question, what is man? And I think we have to understand man, us, as a certain kind of living thing with certain characteristic capacities and activities and operations. And we have to understand what these characteristic activities and operations and goods are that pertain to a man in order to make any sense or any progress on the question, what does it mean to live well or to flourish for a man? Okay, so these rather bold claims are meant to underscore the importance of the topic. Um, which again is philosophical anthropology, or what is the same, a properly philosophical account of man, or as the title would have it, a human person, the human person. And I want to um, enter into the importance of the topic, but also the properly philosophical character of the topic as I understand it, by a little vignette that I like, so how many people have heard of Walker Percy? Know who Walker Percy is? Okay, yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know, Walker Percy was a great American novelist. Um, so some of his most famous novels are The Moviegoer, he won the National Book Award for The Moviegoer, um, Love in the Ruins, The Thanatos Syndrome, 
Um, and he also wrote this book that's really funny called Lost in the Cosmos. He's also a philosopher and an essayist. But this guy, Walker Percy, started off as a doctor. Okay, so he studied medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and he was practicing, um, practicing medicine at Columbia University, and he contracts tuberculosis. And this is pretty early on in his career, so this is in 1942. Um, and so he has to leave his practice. Tuberculosis is a serious, uh, life-threatening condition. And he enters into this long period of recovery, and he's staying at a sanitarium in upstate New York. And at this time, Walker Percy begins to contemplate his own humanity, because that often happens to people when they face imminent death. They start to worry. Um, and he suddenly found that his scientific training was of no use to him. So here's a quote from Walker Percy explaining this period in his life. I was in bed so much, alone so much, that I had nothing to do but read or think. I had wanted to find answers through an application of the scientific method. I had found that method a rather impressive and a beautiful thing, the logic and precision of systematic inquiry, the mind's impressive ability to be clear-headed to reason. But I gradually began to realize that as a scientist, a doctor, a pathologist, I knew so very much about man but had little idea what man is. Now, I think that Percy's recognition at this stage in his life was a really important one. It set him on a different path. But his basic recognition is that he understood man, the concept man, only biologically, but not philosophically. So he understands man as a certain kind of organism, like other kinds of organisms, but not properly as a man. And he realizes that he does not know who or what he is or what his place in the cosmos is. And what's interesting to me about Percy's experience is that he only begins to ask himself these kinds of questions once he faces a kind of crisis or an interruption of his everyday life that forces him into a more philosophical mode of reflection. So he's faced with the prospect of his own imminent death, and he can no longer put this question aside, right? Like, what am I? What's the point? Why am I here? If it's all over really soon, what did any of it mean? And what Percy realizes is that the question of what man is, his essence as a man, is at the same time a question of what he, as an individual human person or self, is. And it's a question posed from within human life and from within the experience of a particular human life. Now, biology, which is his training, uh, biology asks the question, what is man, from a kind of external or alienated perspective as if human life were just another phenomena in the world to be grasped like any other phenomena according to the same basic principles. And science, including medical science and psychiatry, which was his training, had equipped Walker Percy with theories to study things by careful observation as objects, to look at them objectively as just another thing in the world. And it had taught him to study the human body and the human subject 
as just another object in the world. But what Percy came to realize, in part because of this crisis, is that the human self is not another object to be understood according to some theory or some method. It cannot be broken down into simpler elements and principles in the same way without the self disappearing and turning into something else, something that it's not. So the method that Percy had mastered couldn't be applied. And the philosophical questions that he, were, that he was asking himself, which are important questions, which everyone should ask themselves, it was a matter for a reflection from within his life and from within his own experience. And it's that difference, that difference between thinking about the concept man from within human life as a man and studying man as just another thing in the world, um, it's that difference that really marks the difference between philosophical anthropology proper and other ways of thinking about man. So Percy's novels, for those of you who have read Percy's novels, I think all of his novels explore the trouble and the desperation that people get into when they don't know who or what they are. That is to say, when they haven't, when they haven't really entered into a space of proper philosophical reflection, and they live in a culture that um, is either giving them a, a comically stupid <laughs> conception of man or just no conception of man at all. And um, it's because he's exploring this territory that his novels are very funny and dark and prophetic, and I highly recommend them to you. But I'm not going to talk about Walker Percy's novels tonight. I just like, I just like Percy's biography as an entryway into the topic. Um, the topic is man. And if we're going to talk about man, either empirically or philosophically, then we need to distinguish, or I would want to distinguish, between two different concepts of species. So kind of like a biological and a philosophical concept of species. Now, the biological concept of species, I think we're very familiar with. Um, so if you're looking at all of the living things in the world and you want to separate them into discrete species, then you look for a group of organisms that share a common um, ancestry, right? And in virtue of that common ancestry, they share certain characteristic traits or properties, um, and once we start to look for commonalities, we can break things up into various species. Um, that's a perfectly legitimate sense of species, um, but that's not the sense of species that we use when we're doing philosophical anthropology. So when we're doing philosophical anthropology, um, we're speaking of the species man in a different sense. And in order to give kind of the character of this sense, I'm going to quote from a very famous paper from a very famous Catholic philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe. The paper is called Modern Moral Philosophy. And this is what Anscombe says. She's, um, she's trying to look for candidates for thinking about um, what is the philosophical basis for making moral claims or normative judgments about human life. And she says the following. 
Just as man has so many teeth, which is certainly not the average number of teeth men have, but is the number of teeth for the species, so perhaps the species man, regarded not biologically, but from the point of view of the activity of thought and choice in regards to the various departments of life, powers and faculties and use of things needed, has such and such virtues. And this man, with the complete set of virtues, is the norm, as man with a complete set of teeth is the norm. Right? So her idea is that maybe it's possible to speak of man in the sense of an exemplar for the species in a similar way that we speak of man um, maybe in like an anatomy class uh, where we say, okay, well, um, man has... um, Man is bipedal, and man has so many teeth, and et cetera, and so forth. Um, we recognize a kind of norm or ideal when we're doing anatomy. Can we recognize a kind of norm or ideal of man when we think about morality? And if we can, then we're using species man in a philosophical sense. So what Anscombe is proposing is that we look for grounds of moral claims in a concept of the human species or human nature, where this this notion of species is grasped from the point of view of the activity of thought and choice itself, and not from any perspective that is outside or external to or alienated from such activity. So to speak in an old-fashioned way, she's trying to ground ethics in a proper philosophical anthropology. Now what Anscombe recommends to us is the idea that moral norms are a kind of natural norm, a norm that comes from reflection upon what it would mean to be an exemplar of the species. So you could think of it analogously. So just as a good oak tree is one that has strong, deep roots, That is to say, the kind of roots that are necessary in order for the oak to get the sort of nourishment that it needs in order to become a flourishing oak. Then, so too, um, we would argue that a virtuous person is someone with the dispositions of thought, choice, and feelings that are necessary for a flourishing human life, whatever we think that looks like. So then, there's your definition of virtue. Virtues on this view are what, a, are what enable us to make the sort of choices that typically secure the kind of good that it pertains to us to possess, given the kind of living thing that we are. But in order to make sense of this kind of way of talking, to make any sense of this analogy, we have to have some idea of a standard for the species. Now, in making this kind of claim, uh, Anscombe is self-consciously placing herself in the tradition of, of Thomas Aquinas. This is the way that he argues about morality, that it's based in human nature. So what it's good for you to do is dependent on the kind of thing that you are. Um, and for Thomas, 
the concept of nature or form is at the very center of his metaphysics, including his metaphysics of the human person. Now, here's another bold claim. You have lots of knowledge of species of this kind, of the philosophical kind. And this is not the sort of knowledge of a specialist. It's not a theory-laden sort of knowledge. Rather, it's the sort of knowledge that you're going to come to possess just in virtue of living an ordinary human life, experiencing things in the world. Um, so it's, it's a kind of layman's knowledge. And to see, just, just to underscore the fact that you, you do have this kind of knowledge, so imagine that you're walking through a garden and you see a kind of short and stubby, bedraggled sunflower, um, and you say to yourself or to your companion, well, that's not a good one, or that one's not doing very well. Um, this seems like an ordinary judgment um, that anybody could make, and it also seems true. Uh, a short and stubby, bedraggled sunflower is a sunflower that's not doing well. But in order to make this kind of judgment, you have to be operating under, in your perception, a concept of the sunflower, right? In which you recognize what a good sunflower, or just a sunflower, should be like. And you see that this particular sunflower is simply failing to be that. Maybe it didn't get enough sun. Um, sun sunflowers really like sun. <laughs> so, uh, but, but you are, in just making this very simple, ordinary, everyday kind of judgment, it just shows that you do have knowledge of species in this sense. You don't have to have any knowledge of, um, I don't know, the, the evolutionary history of the sunflower or any sense of what phenotypic traits distinguish it from other uh, kinds of flowers. It's, it's not a sophisticated kind of knowledge that you possess. Um, and we can generalize this point, right? So it's just to say that in order to recognize an individual, F, any, any kind of individual, as a living thing of a specific kind that has specific needs, you already have to have a general concept of that kind of thing. Which, which concept constitutes the standard for being that kind of thing? And now, let's just call this concept that you have a concept of a nature or a form or a species. And it's knowledge of something general. Um, but it's knowledge of something general that's always implicit in the individual, right? Such that in order to recognize the individual as an individual of a kind, you always have to refer to that more general concept in your head. Now, consider a proposition about a living thing. Just a really simple one, like horses have four legs, right? Horses have four legs, that seems true. Um, but look, what about Bucephalus after a long battle who has lost his leg? Or what if you stumble across a population of horses where they all only have three legs for whatever reason? Um, this does not vitiate the truth of the proposition that horses have four legs. And that's 
a very significant fact and think. Um, so when I say that horses have four legs, um, it's not falsified by any number of three-legged horses, right? It could be that all the horses around are defective for some reason. So that's point number one. Um, and these generic propositions are also not empirical in the sense that they're not, um, they don't, we don't get these propositions by looking at all the horses and coming up with some kind of statist statistical generalization. Um, and to see this, this is harder to see in the case of horse, so I'll just switch to insects because insects are crazy. Um, so take, for example, also a true proposition. Mayflies breed shortly before dying. This is true of mayflies. Um, they don't live very long, but they breed shortly before they die. Um, now, statistically speaking, the vast majority of mayflies die well before they manage to breed. Like, most mayflies are never going to breed. Um, but it's still true that mayflies breed shortly before dying, right? Um, or you can think of similar, so I'm from South Carolina, so we have the loggerhead turtles, right? Um, the loggerhead turtle, once it hatches, immediately goes to the sea. Um, the, the cruel fact is that upon hatching, um, say there are 100 logger turtle eggs, that's about the typical, um, the typical number, like 99 of them don't make it to the sea, <laughs> okay? They either, um, they either like go towards the parking lot and things go very badly, um, or they're just simply eaten um, or, or whatever. Um, but, it, but it's still true that when the loggerhead hatches, it goes out to sea. Um, so it's not, uh, my, my point is that these propositions don't reflect uh, what happens for the most part. Um, and their truth does not depend on this. Um, so the propositions are not empirical, and yet they are grounded in reality. They don't suggest a mere ideal. That is to say that um, what the propositions pick out has to be something that exists in a strong sense. That is to say, at some point in history, there have to have existed something actually corresponding to the subject term of the judgments that acts in the corresponding way. Um, so it can't be a mere ideal, um, and that's very important. Um, and finally, this is just the last point to distinguish it from the biological concept of species. Um, these propositions don't at all track um, the, the kind of um, historical genesis of how these characteristic properties came to be. So it's in no way a genetic account. So for the philosophical concept of species, uh, when we speak about man in the philosophical sense, um, we kind of just assume that um, we're looking at things at a, at a certain time slice. So it's not at all a claim about the evolutionary history of how it came to be. That history is very interesting, um, but that would be a part of the biological account of species. So that history enters into how we discriminate between species from a biological perspective. 
Um, but it doesn't enter into the space of reflection of the philosophical concept of species. And I'm happy to talk more about why that is in the Q&A, but I just want to note it for now. Okay, so there is a philosophical concept of species. I've said a few things about it. Um, and I only mention this so as to, in a way, kind of give you a sense of species um, that is proper to reflection from inside the standpoint of choice and thought itself. I do not think that the biological concept of species gives you something that's fruitful for that sort of investigation. Um, now, I also want to suggest to you that this philosophical concept of species is very important for understanding human action and human agency. And again, this is a thought that I'm taking from Aquinas, uh, but that I also think is true. So for Aquinas, the paradigmatic case of action is the kind of self-motion that's characteristic of living things. Um, and so in question 18 of, uh, of the prima pars of the Summa Theologiae, this is actually in the treatise on God, um, because Thomas thinks that God is alive. <laughs> um, so, so he too come, comes under this account. Something is alive, according to Aquinas, if it determines itself to its own act. So it's a, it's a self-determination. Uh, what does that mean? Well, one thing that Aquinas argues is that in order to make sense of life activity, as opposed to other kinds of activity, we have to have some account of a unified subject that directs all of its capacities to a single end. Okay, um, And that end is its nature or its form. So a self-mover is something that um, brings all of its capacities or its abilities um, in the service of a single end, namely the creation and maintenance of itself. That's self-motion. So for example, um, think about a human capacity a capacity that humans share with other animals, and that would be the capacity for sight. Um, sight is a capacity that is defined by its object, the visible. Okay, so if you're seeing something, it's a visible sort of thing. But now sight comes to be in a bald eagle for the sake of bald eagle life, and therefore it's different in important ways from sight and other living things. So you don't see like a bald eagle. <laughs> um, no matter how good your sight is, if you have good sight for a, for a human, not a bald eagle, um, human vision compared to bald eagle vision is, um, it looks radically defective. <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's not a defect, right? Um, because sight for us um, is relative to the creation and maintenance of our own form of life. So having 20-20 vision would be a defect for an eagle. It is not a defect for us. Um, nevertheless, we can obviously speak of sight in both a bald eagle and in us. Um, but this just underscores the importance of Thomas's point that we always have to understand capacities as exercising for the sake of the form. I am not a bald eagle, neither are you. Now, a living thing is 
comprised of many different vital capacities. So think of all of the vital capacities that you have. There's a long list. I don't even know all of them. Um, but the idea is that um, in a living thing, you could have a list of all the vital capacities and operations. Um, and they're going to they're gonna form a kind of integrated system that's teleologically structured. Right? Um, and so you can make sense of the thing, the living thing, in terms of, again, the self-maintenance and the coming to be of, of a form. And this is really important for Aquinas um, because he thinks that we can't understand what's up with any living thing. Like, is it digesting? Is it sleeping? What's it doing? We can't understand it just by looking at it at a material level. Um, so for instance, um, and, and this I think is true. So actually, if you think of the process of mitosis, uh, which is kind of like the splitting up of chromosomal materials, it's very important. Um, in an amoeba, that material process is a kind of um, reproduction. In us, it's not, right? In us, it's growth or self-maintenance. Um, so, you, so you have the same material process that in a different living thing is a different kind of process, right? Growth is not the same as reproduction. Um, and so that's why form is incredibly important. Now, Aquinas also thinks that there is in nature a kind of hierarchy of living things. So all self-movers um, constitute themselves. They bring themselves into being. Um, but plant life sort of only moves itself according to its nature. Um, that is to say, a plant has no awareness of what it does, right? It just kind of does what it does. It has a nutritive form of life. Um, it is, Aquinas says, completely determined by its form. Animals, by contrast, Aquinas says, have a higher mode of life or a higher mode of inclination. And that's because animals are conscious. Animals have perceptual powers. So animals... Um, can see, they can cognize things in the world, and they can desire what they cognize. Um, and this means that an animal has a world in a way that a plant does not, um, because it relates itself, it has an orientation to other things in the world. Um, one, it knows things, so it has an awareness of things other than itself, and it desires things. Um, it, it desires to, um, to kind of have communion with things in the world. So um, one thing that's really important about this for Aquinas is that a, um, an animal can see what's good for it, and it can react accordingly. Um, so his favorite example is a sheep um, perceiving a wolf. So a sheep perceives a wolf as dangerous. 
and it has a tendency, it has an instinct to flee in the face of what it perceives as dangerous. And this is no accident. It is because it is a sheep that it sees the wolf as dangerous. Um, and so it's because the sheep is inclined by its nature to seek what is suitable or what is pleasant or what is useful to it and to flee or resist what's harmful or difficult or unpleasant to it um, that Aquinas says it has a kind of sensual appetite, right? Um, so it can want things in the world and it can do things based on what it can perceive and what it can desire. Um, and so it has a higher form of life. Um, it's a more complicated thing. But what a sheep can't do, and this is what really interests Aquinas, um, is a sheep cannot consider whether it ought to flee the wolf in any given situation. So the sheep can't decide to be brave and stand its ground today. Um, why can the sheep not do that? Why can the sheep not really transcend its instincts? Um, and here Aquinas' answer is really interesting to me. Aquinas says that, well, look, the reason it cannot transcend its instincts is that it cannot think of the particular harm that it perceives here and now in front of it in light of a general conception of what's good for it on the whole. So Aquinas argues that, look, you know, animals, they receive through the senses um, some principle of their movement, right? They see something as dangerous. They cannot propose to themselves the end of their own operation or movement. This has been implanted in them by nature, and by natural instinct they are moved to any action through the form apprehended by the senses. So that's all they can do, right? They, um, they sort of filter the world and react to the world based on the kind of thing that they are. And this is just given to them. They cannot propose for themselves their own plan of life. Um, however, we can, right? So we must have some capacities that the mere animal lacks. What are these capacities? These are going to be the capacities that define us as a man, right, as men, as humans. Um, and for Aquinas, these are the capacities of intellect and will. So intellect and will are capacities to know and to desire. Um, but they are capacities to know and to desire things in a universal or conceptual way. Um, and that makes all the difference for Aquinas. So... A human person is like a plant in the sense that, look, we grow, we reproduce, and we maintain our forms. Mostly we do this without any control. So, you know, maybe you're digesting some food right now. You're not really involved in that personally. <laughs> that's, just, um, that's just going on with you. I mean, if, if you've ever been pregnant, it's sort of amazing. Um, you can, you can um, cook up a whole baby um, and really have no, <laughs> no, no part in what's going on uh, other than, you know, just not messing it up, <laughs> not interfering with it. Um, so, so this is kind of like, you know, our nutritive form of life, which is just like the, the plant-like part of us. 
Um, and then, and then we're also like animals. Okay, we also perceive things, and so we have sensory desires. Um, we have passions, um, and this is this is very very close to the way that animals interact in the world. Um, we have that too, uh, but we have something that plants and animals do not have, and that is intellect and will. And it's through the exercise of these capacities that we determine ourselves to realize our form in a much higher way. So a human person, Aquinas says, has a self-conscious, self-determined kind of life. And it is the nature of self-consciousness. Um, you come into possession of a self, whatever that is. Um, evidence of that is that you attach the I concept right, to things in your life, I see, I think, I do. Um, an animal does not have an I concept and does not have a self-conscious form of life. And Aquinas thinks that um, there's a connection, a deep and important connection between um, seeing things in a universal way and coming to have a self or have self-consciousness. Um, now, to think a little bit more clearly about the distinction between sense desire, which is a kind of animal form of desire, and will, which is a rational form of desire, a higher form of desire, just think of somebody who smells some fresh cake, like maybe you're at the office, you smell some fresh cake coming out of the hallway, and you just have this immediate gut reaction, like, oh, it smells good, right? Um, and you feel, like maybe you feel a hunger or an attraction, maybe you walked by the bakery and you're not even hungry, but you're just like, hmm, that's good. That's sense desire. Um, and, it, and it's a kind of immediate response. Um, it's a kind of attraction. Um, it smells good, maybe I wanna eat that. Um, smells delectable. However, you are not determined, right, to act on this desire. That is to say, nothing determines that you are going to go into the bakery and buy a croissant or go into your colleague's office and eat his cake. Um, you have a choice to make, right? So you can be prompted by sense desire, and you are all the time, just as you can be prompted by your emotional responses to things, but it doesn't determine what you do. Um, you have to make a choice in that moment. Am I gonna eat the cake? Am I gonna buy the croissant? You know, and now, and now I have to think about it. So to judge and to choose, which is what you as a, as a human person have to do, is to act in the manner characteristic of the human person. This is characteristic of the way we act. We make judgments and we choose in light of those judgments. But you cannot make a judgment about what you ought to do in a specific situation without assessing it in light of some general conception of how you go on in life, right? And this is what Aquinas calls the universal good. And when he says that the will is a kind of desire that's ordered to the universal good, what he means is that 
It's a kind of desire that is contextualized by these judgments about the universal good. Um, so if you think about anything that you might perceive or anything that you might centrally desire, you can perceive it and desire it under many different descriptions. Um, so you can see a piece of cake as a yummy, delectable thing, a thing that might contribute to giving you cancer, a property of someone else, right? Um, something whose consumption would constitute breaking a promise, right? You can see a cake and under an infinite number of descriptions. An animal cannot do this, right? Um, and depending on which description you're focused on, you may or may not want that cake, right? So if you're just focused on the description delectable thing, right, you're more likely to make the choice to eat it. It is quite delectable. But if you're more focused on the description, it's someone else's property, it might give me cancer, blah, 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 um, you're less likely to find it attractive or appealing and to have it lead to some choice. Um, so you can perceive things and want them under an infinite number of descriptions. You can do that because you're a rational creature. But ultimately, the ground of your choice in the situation is your sense of whether or not this is the thing you ought to be doing in the situation, right? And how you settle that question, whether or not you ought to eat the cake, is gonna depend on a lot of your beliefs um, about how you ought to go on in life. Ought I to steal people's stuff? Um, ought I to eat cake, you know, at, at 9 a.m.? Um, like, is, is this the way to go on? Um, all of this, all of this generality is brought to bear on what you do in the situation. And what Aquinas says is, well, look, this is just not, this is not happening with the animals, right? So a person has to bring the generality of her life on the whole to bear on the particular particularity of any situation she's confronted with. If her life on the whole is well-ordered, then she's going to be well-positioned to make a true judgment and a good choice. But regardless of whether she acts well or poorly, whether she exercises her reason and will in the situation well or poorly, it is the human ability to grasp the particular in light of the general and act accordingly that is the hallmark of human action. And so in this sense, it's up to us what we do in a much deeper sense than it is for any other animal. And Aquinas characterizes this um, in terms of the concept of dominium. So he says that um, man is the master of his actions. That is to say, he has this kind of dominium over his own acts because of his reason and will. And I take that to mean that he has 
a kind of thoughtful control or deliberative control or rational control over what he does and also what he doesn't do. Um, and this leads Aquinas to say that every properly human act is moral. And I think this is a confusing kind of thesis for people because people tend to think modern people, not medieval people, um, tend to hear moral as like a super special corner of human life that's really important, right? So like what you had for dinner, that's not moral, or like what you wore today, that's not moral, but whether or not you murdered somebody, that's moral. Um, this is not how Aquinas is thinking at all. Aquinas is thinking um, your, your choice to drink coffee this morning was a moral act, right? Um, your decision to wear socks was a moral act. Your decision to be here or not be here was a moral act. Um, for Aquinas, that just means it was a human act. What does that mean? That means that it's susceptible to praise or blame, right? Um, so it's either good that you're here or it's not good that you're here. <laughs> um, it's not like morally neutral. It's just either good that you're here or it's not good that you're here. Um, now, how can we say whether or not it's good that you're here or better that you not be here? Um, well, maybe if the talk turns out to be bad, it was better that you not be here. But um, <laughs> we need a measure, right? And for Aquinas, um, the measure is set by form. So in that sense, you're, it's kind of like every other living thing. Um, whether or not it was good for the sheep to flee the wolf depends on what it is to be a sheep. It is good for the sheep to flee the wolf. Um, whether or not it's good for you to be here depends on your humanity. Um, but, it, but it's much more complicated. Um, because what it is for you to have a final end for Aquinas is a much more complicated thing. So remember that at the beginning I said a living thing is something whose capacities all operate for the sake of a single end. What is, this, what is the end for the sake of which all your human acts are ordered? That end will both define your act as a human act and it will measure it as a good or bad human act. And Aquinas' answer to what this end is, is happiness. Okay, so a human act is an act that ought to contribute to a human being's happiness. If it fails to contribute to their happiness, it's a bad human act. If it helps to secure their happiness, it's a good human act. I think the fact that happiness is the end for the human um, surprises a lot of people because we tend to think of happiness as something subjective, right? Um, a pleasant subjective experience maybe. Um, and that's not really how Thomas is thinking about happiness. So for Thomas, happiness will in fact be pleasant subjectively, but only because happiness is communion with real goods. And Aquinas thinks that um, there is some common good to which the human or men are ordered. 
um, and the extent to which your life is ordered to the attainment of that good and the extent to which you manage to secure that good for yourself in your life is the extent to which you are acting well. Um, So what is then happiness? Um, Here Aquinas draws a couple of important distinctions. There's like formal and material happiness. Formal happiness is just what I talked about when I talked about the will having an object, the universal good. That's kind of empty, right? So Aquinas recognizes that you need some substantive vision of how to live. And you have to decide what that vision consists in. Now Aquinas thinks you get a little help from nature. Aquinas thinks that as a human being, you're inclined to certain goods, just in virtue of being a human being. So these are goods like friendship, knowledge, family, the preservation of your own life, things like this. Um, But you have to operate under your own vision of what it means to live well. And that would be a material conception of happiness. So, and Aquinas thinks, well, when it gets to the level of a material conception of happiness, there's a lot of disagreement. A lot of people are operating under a false vision of what it is to be happy. Um, And this is a source of ruining their lives. If you're operating under a false vision, um, you're going to choose poorly. So it matters that you get it right. Now, when it comes to thinking about what the true vision is, um, Aquinas says the following. First, he says that happiness is a common good. And for Aquinas, that means three things. It's common to you in virtue of being a human being. Um, So it's the good that's common to you given your nature. It's not a competitive good. So my pursuit of happiness, if I'm doing it in the right way, in no way detracts from your pursuit of happiness. It's It's not competitive or rivalrous. And it's also never the sole possession of an individual, right? So it's a participatory good. It's something shared in common with others and can only be brought about in common with others. And that's really important. And if that's true, if happiness is a common good, then there's no way that happiness can be reduced to a pleasant subjective experience. I can manipulate myself into having a pleasant subjective experience, and I can have it on my own, right? So that would, be a, that would be a private good. Happiness is not like that. If happiness were a private good, it would be divorced from our nature, from the reality of the kind of thing that we are. Um, so happiness is a common good in this sense. Now, Aquinas thinks that if we're going to think about what happiness is, then we have to be thinking about what would satisfy us given the kind of thing that we are. And I've already said that what we essentially are is a creature with intellect and will. So we desire to know the truth, and we desire to have communion with the good. Um, But I've also pointed out that we can know, um, we can know many things, we can know them under many different descriptions, and we can want. We can want an infinite number of things 
under an infinite number of descriptions. So is happiness sort of like just getting exhausted, right? Um, no, it's not. Aquinas thinks that there has to be a hierarchy. There has to be a hierarchy of goods that orders your choice. And a well-ordered life obviously has to be ordered to the highest good, where the highest good is going to be a common good, but it's going to be a good that satisfies a creature with intellect and will. And here Aquinas' argument is pretty straightforward. Aquinas thinks, look, nothing is going, no created thing is going to satisfy a creature with intellect and will. Because to possess an intellect and a will is in a way explicitly to reach out for the infinite. So he thinks that the only thing that will really satisfy you as someone who desires to know the truth and to have communion with the good is something that would be such that if you knew it, there would be nothing left for you to know. And if you had communion with it, there would be nothing left for you to want. It would fully satisfy you. And so Aquinas um, thinks that this good must be communion with God, right? Contemplating God, seeing God in his essence. Only this can satisfy something, can satisfy a creature like us. Um, and I just, so uh, this is going to be like my final thought. Um, I give a lot of talks about happiness. Um, and... So I'm, so I'm constantly talking to people about happiness, and I think the thing that really trips people up more than anything is the idea of sacrifice. So people think that if I'm happy, right, then I won't have to sacrifice anything. Um, but this is... Um, this thought, which is very common, I think, is based in a failure to recognize the kind of thing that we are. Um, we're the kind of thing that is happy in friendship, in communion, principally with others. We cannot have this friendship or this communion with others if we are unwilling to sacrifice, right? Um, there's really, if you're thinking of your happiness as some kind of self-satisfaction such that when you're thinking about what to do, you're always worried about how it's going to benefit you, right? Or how it's not going to benefit you. Um, this is basically the path to unhappiness, right? Because if happiness is communion with common goods in a participatory way with others, then you need to stop thinking about yourself first and foremost and be thinking about others, seeing your happiness as their happiness, right? As a common good between you. Um, and look, there's just no way, um, there's no way to have this kind of meaningful communion or friendship without sacrifice without personal sacrifice 
And so I think that when you're thinking about how to order your life, you should really ask yourself in a very serious way what you're willing to die for. And I don't mean like in extreme circumstances, like, you know, what am I willing to be a martyr for? I mean dying to yourself in that kind of everyday, casual way that's the stuff of the serious moral life. Um, Because if you're not willing to die for anything, like if you're just willing for yourself or living for yourself, then if Aquinas is right about the kind of thing that we are, that is to say, a creature that's born for beatitude, you are never going to be happy. And that's my final thought. Thank you for your attention.